It's good to see you guys. My name is Matt Moberg. Uh, thrilled that you are here with us tonight. Tonight is our first night of our new series, The Road Before the Rise. We are taking the next three weeks to identify three specific, specific, specific. I love looking at it, Maggie, because every time I mess out, she goes, you can do it. Keep going. Don't stop now. You've come too far. <laughs> Thank you, Maggie. My wife is like, you idiot. Don't embarrass our family. Um, <clears throat> we're identifying three specific moments preceding uh, the cross, preceding Easter, uh, three specific moments that happen on three different hills. We're going to the garden, to the Sanhedrin, to the cross of Calvary. And so tonight, uh, we're going to take our trip to the first scene, which is the Mount of Olives. We're going to go to the moment before the moment. We're going to go into the Garden of Gethsemane. And so if you have your Bibles, now would be an ideal time to pull them out. Turn to Mark chapter 14, verses 32, and we'll go from there. I'll start reading if you don't have your Bibles. Mark 14, 32 through 34, reads like this. They went to a place called Gethsemane. Now, context-wise, the they that are being referred to is Jesus and his 12 disciples. They were just having a dinner that is, is commonly known as the Last Supper. They were just gathering over the Pascal meal. They were discussing what was about to unfold, though not in detail. The general picture has been painted, and now Jesus is leading them out to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Keep reading that. And Jesus says to his disciples when they get to the place called Gethsemane, sit here while I pray. He then took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass for him, from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you really asleep? Don't you love that Peter gets called out? I mean, they're all asleep, but Peter's the one who gets the shade cast off on him. Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is very willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and he prayed the same thing. And when he came back again, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. Their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. This is the moment before the moment. This is the first crushing that precedes the cross. Jesus has just brought these boys from dinner into the pits of despair. They're standing on the Mount of Olives. He brings all 12 with him, but he leaves nine on the outskirts, and he brings three close. And inside, they go into this garden, this enclosed space that is known as Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane, if we understand the history of this word, it means a wine press of oil. It was located among the olive groves on the south side of the Mount of Olives, and its purpose was strictly to be that place where local, uh, locals would bring grapes and olives. They would come into Gethsemane, the garden, and those, there'd be machines there that would press. They would extract the oil from the olives and extract the wine from the grapes. I don't tell you that just to prove to you that your boy did some research this week, although that's always a nice add-on. Um, I tell you that because it actually clears up a lot of what is happening here. If you read this story... In the context of Mark's entire story, this moment is actually very confusing. 
it doesn't make a lot of sense. Because when you follow Jesus' journey from start to finish in the Gospel of Mark, you, you walk away with the impression that he knows how it's all going to end. That he has some sense that like it's not going to be a long life and he's going to die in his sleep. He has some sense that at some point his story is going to be ambushed and it's going to get ugly before it gets better. You get that impression. He says it specifically. He says the Son of Man will be given up for the lives of many. The Son of Man will be taken up. He says these things, and it's confusing to me because when you walk into this scene, it's as if he is figuring out for the very first time what's about to unfold. How is that possible? One scholar described it like this, saying, for people who have gone through divorce, if you were to ask them to walk the story backwards for you, they would say that, yeah, there were times when they were together, they both knew that the marriage was heading towards destruction. They knew that it was not going to be healed. They knew it was going to be dark. They knew it would be divorced. They knew that that end was coming. But it is a different thing entirely to see her bag stacked up against the door. It is a different thing entirely having to make that meal for one instead of two. It is a different thing entirely sleeping alone in a bed when she's no longer there. That different thing is the different thing that Jesus is going through here. He walks into the garden of Gethsemane. The aroma of soaked oil and wine is steaming off the ground. The skins of olives and grapes are scattered all over the trees. In the distance, he can hear the churning of the pressing machines. And at some point, though the text doesn't say, he connects a dot or two and he recognizes that just like the olives and just like the grapes, I too will be trampled. I too will be beat down. I too will be destroyed so that the wine can come forth, so that the essence of me can come out. And then he has this moment where he is in utter despair. And this is a moment, you know, in the life of Jesus, there's a lot about Jesus, if we're honest, that's super confusing. It's a super mysterious life. In fact, I read recently that of 183 questions that were sent Jesus' way, he only answers three of them. Not helpful. Like, that's not the most clear. He's not a person who's, like, overly concerned about you having a clear mind at all times, understanding who he was and what he does. Jesus can be very mysterious. And yet in this moment, the mystery kind of is unveiled. His humanity is shown in a different way here. When he walks into that garden, his hands are shaking, his mouth is muttering, his nose is running, his eyes are swollen. He's in despair. He's holy, he's holy, but he's heavy. He's trying to hold it all. And the one slice of strength that he has with him is knowing that behind him, he's got three of his best friends who said to him that we will be with you in this. Come hell or high water, we won't leave your side. Imagine the pain when he turns around and he sees them fast asleep. And we read that and we go, how do, you, how do you fall asleep? These are the same guys who are saying over dinner that they would never leave his side. We're not even talking about staying awake. No matter what, we will never abandon you. We will never flee from you, never fail you. You are our friends. You are, we are following you to the ends of the earth. They couldn't stay awake. Three separate times, Jesus comes and wakes them up. How did they fall asleep? I was at a hockey uh, fundraiser breakfast yesterday morning, um, giving my, the financial, uh, giving how much money I make. You know, people are always coming after my wallet. It's just part of the, it's my cross to carry, I guess. But I was at this 
Just kidding. I'm really poor, actually, you guys. If you want to tip sermons for now, that'd be really nice. I'm thinking about um, I was at this hockey fundraiser yesterday morning, and it was there to support this ministry that does a lot of work with different hockey teams all around the country. I spare you a lot of the details, but there's different people that are coming up, and they're sharing their stories of faith and, and hockey. I mean, it's like it's, it's the Brottons are talking and all these people. And in the middle of this one interview, it's a very like, tightly knit schedule. You move from here to there. It's all lined out. And in the middle of this one interview with, uh, where Chico Resch is interviewing Keith Ballard, who used to play for the Wild, uh, they're talking about faith and they're talking about the formative role that's played in their, his hockey career, but also in just his family life. When out of the corner of my eye, I see the, the founder of the organization sitting in the front row. He starts to shake. And then I see him kind of like bobbing a little bit. And next thing I know, he falls out of his chair onto the floor in a full-blown seizure. I've never seen that before. If you've never seen a seizure before, that's a pretty overwhelming thing to witness. Um, So people panicked. They got up around his friends, come over, and they're trying to figure out, like, what do we do? He doesn't have a lot of history going through this. but So they're gathering around him. The room is like praying for him. There's a nurse in the back corner who is now up at the front of the room kind of tending to him. And after like a few minutes have passed, he comes out of it and he sits back in his chair and the program resumes. About 25 seconds later, it happens again. He seizes up, bones, everything, bobbing, eyes, and he falls on the ground again. Friends gather around him again. Nurse is back up to the front of the room, but this time the paramedics are rushing in. Uh, People are praying. It's a scary thing. Um, And eventually the paramedics come in with a stretcher and they take this man away. Between the time the stretcher left the room and the time the interviewer asked Keith Ballard about where he met his wife, it was about two minutes. Between the time that anybody could actually collect their jaw off the floor and try to process what just happened, And the time that we started talking about hockey again, it was no time. It is not hard to understand why people fall asleep when they get into the garden. It's not hard to understand when you enter into these spaces of disruption and pain and trauma and agony and hardship. That our immediate reaction, the reaction that we are wired to have to something like that is how do we get back to cozy and calm and collected? How do we get things back on schedule? How do we denounce and deny and delay the interruptions of life so that we can keep on keeping on the way that we intended to? How do we avoid the ambushes of life? How do we actually be faithful in these places where there is a garden? Because it is so hard to try and stay awake. The text tells us um, that these boys, they fall asleep because their eyes are heavy. And I don't think it's because they didn't get a lot of sleep. They had just sat at dinner with Jesus as Jesus kind of laid out what fate would look like for them. They just sat at at dinner with Jesus where Jesus says, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. In my blood that will be shed for you. It is me. That is a hard thing to see when the person that you love more than anybody else is the person who's also going to be leaving very soon. Where the end is close. Their eyes have been soaked in heaviness. Our eyes have been soaked in heaviness. When you stare at sorrow, it can make you sleep. Or it can make you more awake. For the three disciples, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the garden, 
They feel that ambush on life. They feel the disruption coming in. But Jesus, he does not sleep. Jesus feels it more intimately and more intensely than anybody else in the story. And yet he does not sleep. Mark lays it out in very thick detail where he talks about how Jesus is in deep depression. The Greek is actually saying that he is having a panic attack in, to a certain extent where his own capillaries are bursting, where blood is mingling with the sweat of his brow. He, he's being crushed in the despair. And he says to God, he says, for you, anything is possible. For me, I can't do this. But then he follows up with, and yet, if your will outweighs my want, so be it. Jesus brings out all of his insides into his outsides. See, part of the, the, the thing that I've been realizing in my own life, and as I've been stalking most of you, I know it's true for you too, is I don't think we're scared of the garden, the places where the oil is extracted from our fragile olive skin. I don't think that's what we're afraid of. I think we're afraid of sprawling out on the garden floor, of looking weak, of looking scared, of looking like we don't know what we're doing, of hearing people say, God, please take this thing away. I think we're scared of being in that place of vulnerability. And yet you cannot follow Christ. You cannot be committed to a life of love without being arms wide open vulnerable. You're only living a life of love if love is that which is willing to be wounded. That which is willing to give itself for the sake of something bigger. That which is willing to consider love's will over your own personal wants. And yet most of the time we just don't want people to see us cry. This is what's interesting about the gospel stories is that Mark is the first gospel that's ever written and Mark goes into detail, gory, embarrassing detail like nobody else does. Matthew's the second gospel, we believe. Matthew cleans it up a little bit. The Greek is, is almost mirroring what Mark does, but he does it in softer tones. By the time we get to Luke, Luke is completely softened it up and he's even thrown into the mix an angel. An angel is in the Luke garden story and he, the angel is like massaging Jesus Walking Jesus through the angst and the agony of the moment. By the time we get to John, the last gospel that's written, you don't even have this story even in it. Jesus comes into earth embodying the good news, all of it, all of the truth that can only come out once it's trampled. And we soften it along the way. We're afraid of the disruption. We're more committed to protecting and preserving our image that we gave ourselves instead of pursuing the identity that God gave us first. I'm going to tell you this story. Uh, I don't have much of a filter. You guys know that, so I'm going to tell you it. Uh, last last um, summer, I was in this, uh, I, was, I was feeling like super stressed out about church stuff, about uh, you guys, about doing this, about us committing to taking on this role and, and going down this road. And I remember one night in L.A. where um, I was in L.A., and I was feeling it in a different kind of way. Like, I don't know if it was a panic attack or not, but just like overwhelmed like we're screwed. <laughs> like we are so screwed and nobody knows about me. <laughs> that's a lonely place to be. <laughs> but that's, I was, and I was thinking about like, man, I don't know if anybody's ever planted a church 
and then actually quit prior to planting. Like, I just don't know if, <laughs> I don't know if that's happened. Like, this could, be, this could be the talk of the town. We might <laughs> write a book about something like this. Real opportunity here. But I was to that point where it's like, I don't want to do this. Like, this is, this is not going to work. And uh, I went down to the bar area. And I went down to the bar, and I grabbed myself a beer. I mean, I purchased it. I didn't just take it from him. I got a beer. And then I went to watch a baseball game. And as I was sitting there in the baseball game, there was this girl that came up to me and said, oh, are you a baseball fan? Which, I mean, read between the lines is like, can I get you a number? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so tell you this, <clears throat> nothing happened between me and said girl, but I remember talking to Lauren that night and telling her that, Lauren, it was the weirdest thing. For a moment, I thought, this could be, this could be how I clean up all of my problems back home. I, hear me out, not marital problems, clearly, that's not going to help in the marriage, but when I think about church and I think about the tasks that we were taking on and the stress back home, I think about, man, if I had one moral failure or one whoopsie-daisies, I could come back here and stand in front of all of you and with like eyes wet, cheeks wet, say to you, uh, guys, I would love to continue to lead. Nothing would do me. I feel like I, this was my calling. This is what I was brought in here for. But I, I messed up. I had a stupid moment. I made a mistake and my hands are tied. Somebody else is going to have to take this over from here. For a moment, it was preferable in my mind to come and stand before you all and look stupid so that I didn't look scared. For a moment, it was preferable to, to look like an absolute idiot so you didn't have to see that I have no idea what I'm doing. For a moment, it was preferable in my mind that you actually see as somebody who is a terrible husband, ter- made some mistakes, so that you don't see that I go to bed every night scared, thinking that eventually I'm going to be exposed. Somebody's going to find out that you're not cut out for this, that you don't have what it takes. See, this is the beauty of what Jesus is saying right here, is that if we actually take seriously the following of Jesus, when we walk what he would call the way, you got to go to the garden, and all of the wine inside of you has to break through the fragile skin that tries to keep it away. Because when we try to conceal, to stuff, to suffocate, when we try to protect our image over pursuing our identity and what God has put in you, you do stupid things. You don't go to the garden. You go to sleep. There's a film. I'm going to show you a quick uh, clip here. It's the best film that was ever created outside of Jeff Johnson's film, obviously. And there is a moment, though, where Robin Williams... He, he turns to the young Matt Damon, and I know it's not about God, but I heard it for the first time about God and about the church, about our understanding of the divine and, and how we know God. We know theology. We know our doctrine. We know all about God. But do you know God? Do you follow intimately enough where you are willing, out of love, to give your life away? Watch this film. This taste is choice moment between guys. This is really nice. You got a thing for swans? Is this like a fetish? It's something like maybe we need to devote some time to. I thought about what you said to me the other day about my painting. Huh. I stayed up half the night thinking about it. Something occurred to me. I fell into a deep, peaceful sleep and haven't thought about you since. Do you know what occurred to me? No. You're just a kid. You don't have the faintest idea of what you're talking about. Why, thank you. It's all right. 
You've never been out of Boston. Nope. So if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo. I know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientation, the whole works, right? I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling. Seen that. If I ask you about women, you'd probably give me a silver, say your personal favorites. You may have even been laid a few times. But you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You're a tough kid. When I ask you about war, you'd probably uh, throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends. But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap and watch him gasp his last breath, looking to you for help. When I ask you about love, you'd probably quote me a sonnet. You've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. Known someone that could level you with her eyes. Feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you. Who could rescue you from the depths of hell. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel. To have that love for her be there forever. Through anything. Through cancer. And you would know about sleeping, sitting up in a hospital room for two months, holding her hand, because the doctors could see in your eyes that the terms visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss, because that only occurs when you love something more than you love yourself. I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. I look at you, I don't see an intelligent, confident man. see a cocky, scared, hitless kid. But you're a genius, Will. No one denies that. No one could possibly understand the depths of you. But you presume to know everything about me because you saw a painting of mine. You ripped my f***ing life apart. You're an orphan, right? Do you think I'd know the first thing about how hard your life has been? How you feel? Who you are? Because I read Oliver Twist. Does that encapsulate you? Personally, I don't give a shit about all that. Because you know what? I can't learn anything from you. I can't read in some book. Unless you want to talk about you. Who you are. And I'm fascinated. I'm in. But you don't want to do that, do you, sport? You're terrified of what you might say. You move, Chief.
In the information age, we are tempted to make our lives all about our beliefs. But as a people who are committed to the incarnation, it's all about our bodies and how we bleed, how we bring out all the things that are layered and lost and scared and anxious on the inside. We bring that out to the outside. To follow Jesus in this season of Lent as we make our way towards the cross of Calvary and the empty tomb of Easter, uh, we do so by getting honest, by prioritizing our own identity and the soul work at hand over preserving and protecting this image that is keeping us from our truth, that is keeping us from being trampled so that the oil and the wine can come out. Jesus gives in theory at dinner his idea, his proclamation to him that the body of his is about to be broken. And then he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood that's going to be shed for you for the new covenant. Take part. And the one ask that he makes on them is that you don't forget. That you don't forget the road that leads before the rise. That you don't forget that this journey towards your own resurrection, it has to go through the garden. And you have to stay awake. And you have to feel everything on the inside to the point where it holds you captive on the outside. Will you pray with me? Lord God, you are good, you are faithful, you are here. Help us to be here too. Lord, we love you. God, we are grateful for the work that you are doing in our lives. We're grateful for the work that you are doing in this community. Thank you, Jesus, for pressing through the garden, for staying awake. Lord, for showing us what it means to be human. For giving us the courage to not suffocate and stuff down everything that we feel that we fear. God, for showing us how to have our lives disrupted and delivered because of it. Now, will you stand with me as we say the Lord's Prayer together? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.